Welcome to part two of our discussion with Ray Boomhauer about his book, Richard Tregaskis, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam. Let's get started. Reading through your book, I was constantly struck by your ability to translate the stories of the soldiers that Tregaskis encountered during his years in combat. That, to me, was a major connection point. And, and I really encourage our audience to, when reading the book, to really see that. Because you, you wove together many different stories into a larger one. And it's really hard to do. So I just really, really enjoyed that. And as part of that, it seemed like Tregaskis was also able to weave those stories into his reporting as well. So what would you attribute his ability to, to quote, suspend ego and tell the stories of others? And was that a key component to his success and drive? I think it was. I think it comes uh, from his long career in journalism. And we have that in common. Uh, I started my career as a newspaper reporter for a couple of newspapers on small towns in Indiana. And he started his career way back when he was in uh, prep school. He tried to make some money uh, by uh, writing articles for local newspapers about activities sporting events, graduation events at these uh, schools. And then when he went on to Harvard, he continued. He was the Harvard correspondent for a variety of Boston newspapers. So when he graduated, he had this long experience in dealing with people and trying to get their stories told and put on the page uh, for a, a variety of uh, avenues. He you know, wrote not only hard news, but uh, feature articles uh, as well. So he had this broad experience that he could use when he encountered this uh, new field of endeavor, you know, reporting about combat when he went into battle in World War II. So that kind of uh, uh, experience, I think, translated well uh, when he uh, worked uh, as a war correspondent. And uh, he was used to, you know, sometimes even not knowing if his stories got into print. Uh, he said it's kind of like writing writing home because you never know if your letters are going to get back to uh, your folks back home. And sometimes as a correspondent, you didn't know if your dispatches would make it because it was just the communication was a very uh, hit and miss sometimes uh, when you're experiencing in, uh, in combat. And on that point, did he ever, once the war is over and he's back home, did he ever go on it? You mentioned he didn't do book tours. Did he ever go on anything like that? Was he ever, did he ever get the recognition that his, that his fame today, we would say entitled him to what was his kind of post-war experience with with other members of the press with the public and and things like that his fame i think really helped him uh gave him a, a leg up on other people when it came to trying to branch out into uh other fields of writing so after the war uh he continues to do some work for the saturday evening post which he had written for uh, near the end of the war, uh, going back to the Pacific. He tracked some of the people he'd known in the war and seeing how they were doing as civilians, how were they handling that transition from combat into civilian life. And because he knew war so well, he was able to go to Hollywood and uh, get some jobs with a variety of uh, film studios uh, because he had something that a lot of other writers didn't have. You know, he had this experience in combat in writing about it, and he, they thought that they could use this uh, special skill of his uh, for various war films and, and other movies. Uh, that never didn't work out as, as well as he had hoped. Uh, he thought that uh, he, he didn't have that control that he wanted. Uh, so he returned to you know becoming a, a freelance writer so he could pick and choose his subjects. It was a very hard life. 
uh, as any freelancer knows. Uh, most of his time was spent on kind of selling himself, even though he had this famous name because of his work in World War II. That didn't necessarily sometimes uh, mean that uh, a, a publisher or a magazine editor uh, would take his manuscript. He had to work very hard at uh, selling himself to get his uh, work into print again. And he said, you know, this, there's just not enough time to write. He wanted to have uh, more time instead of trying to uh, wheel and dime his way, you know, nickel and dime his way through uh, a variety of uh, publishing uh, endeavors. Hmm. And, uh, you know, being a nonfiction writer uh, took a lot of time because there's a lot of research because he was dealing with a variety of uh, subjects. He, for example, uh, wrote a whole book uh, about the development of the X-15 supersonic test plane that they used for to see how airplanes might handle uh, in, at very fast speeds. And he, you know, tracked this project. So he had to, you know, uh, learn a lot about uh, about flyers, about uh, engineering and the various aspects of putting the X-15 into the air. So it was a very difficult thing uh, to do. And they had to do a lot of research in that. And that takes time uh, and money. And he's trying to make a living while doing all this at the same time. Yeah. It seemed like he didn't really care about fame at all. It wasn't like none of that really mattered to him. It was more about his his drive to either get back out into the field or tell people about what he saw. Is, is that an accurate way to describe him? I think that uh, a lot of journalists are what I like to call shy egomaniacs. It's not about me. It's all about the, the subject. At the same time, though, you know, you're proud of your work. Uh, you want to see it uh, recognized. And um, you think that uh, you're probably uh, doing some uh, good work uh, as a writer. And you want that uh, recognition. I think Tregaskis uh, was the same way. Uh, you know, he was chasing a variety of projects to keep his name uh, it, before the public eye. And he continued to do that uh, all the way up uh, till, until he died. So he was able to do that by just uh, hard work and perseverance. Throughout your book, I just kept asking sometimes out loud, like, who is this guy? This is incredible. Based on your the research and excluding his injury, which, which one of those conflicts or experiences had the biggest impact on his life and the way that he reported? I think if you take away Guadalcanal and his being wounded, I think the thing that had the most impact on him were those early forays into the Pacific with the Navy fleet, on, particularly in two aspects of the early days in the Pacific. One, uh, the Doolittle Raid, which uh, it's amazing, you know, the first assignment he had for the International News Service was on going on a cruiser as part of the task force that accompanied the Doolittle Raiders in their mission, secret mission to bomb Tokyo. And it just dumbfounds me that that's his first assignment. Right. He gets this <laughs> very, very famous part of World War II. It might not, you know, have changed the strategic picture that much, but it was a great uh, shot in the arm for the uh, American morale during those days in the Pacific because, you know, uh, the Navy has suffered in defeat after defeat uh, to the Japanese uh, in that theater. And this was finally the first uh, big news that we had that, uh, who know, we might just actually uh, defeat the Japanese. And uh, Tregascus was there watching the bombers take off from the deck of the USS Hornet. And then he's able to get on the Hornet and go with the crew into the uh, Battle of Midway, which is a, you know, 
the major turning point, I think, along with Guadalcanal in the uh, battle against the Japanese uh, in the Pacific. And he gets that experience in getting to know crewmen, fighter pilots, torpedo pilots, uh, the dive bomber pilots, uh, getting to know them, talk to them, uh, relax with them on their off-duty times, uh, listen to records in their cabins, joke with them, uh, play cards with them, and watch them as they fly off into battle. And uh, later on, realize that not every one of them is coming, coming back, that there are now empty seats at the dinner table uh, that were full before and gets that uh, idea of what it's like to lose friends in combat and uh, see how, you know, the men in the military react to that uh, and not really talk about it. He wants them to talk about it. You know, what is, what is it like to know that you, that you might be dead just, you know, from an accident or, or from combat, but they don't like to talk about it. And he learns that aspect of what war is, is really like. And I think that really propels him then into a subsequent career on Guadalcanal and then in Sicily and, and Italy. And that serves as, I think, a great launching point for his uh, time as a war correspondent and uh, really gets him a good foundation for his later work. And uh, it's a, an amazing part of that uh, Doolittle Raid. You know, he's taking all these notes. He has this great story and he can't tell it because they clamped down, you know, censorship on all the reporters who were on the task force to report on this. And his articles about the Doolittle Raid don't appear until a year later, a year after all this had happened. And by that time, he's, of course, well-known for Guadalcanal Diary. Uh, so, of course, they uh, run his uh, articles in newspapers. Uh, it's a series of articles, and they call it the, uh, the Doolittle Diary. So he kind of takes advantage of the, his fame that he'd won for the Guadalcanal Diary. Mm. Nice. I think one of the most poignant moments for me reading the book was when you talk about he's sitting in, I think it's an officer's mess or something, and he sees chairs that were once full and are now empty. And he, it was either you or he describing it uh, as them almost as tombstones. Just these empty chairs mm -hmm. are, are now are now like tombstones. I just thought to be so young, so early in this war and to get this kind of experience is is incredible you can almost write a movie though i mean he seemed to be at all of the major events during that yeah. first year of the uh yeah. of the pacific war just an incredible scope of adventure of experience in such a limited period of time so early in his life anyway i just wanted to make that that comment yeah and uh, you know i was struck by kind of the, uh, the, the oh. forrest gump of world war ii yeah. Yeah. really <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah, I was I was struck at that and also how he described the mentality of the sailors. Like he was expecting them to be really nervous, to be really like kind of in a condition red all the time and they weren't. He learned one of the reasons why is that a lot of these sailors had seen combat already. And they just learned there wasn't really any reason to, to be wired up before <laughs> the battle begins. You want to save that energy for when you're in, in the conflict itself. So I, I was because yeah. we all have this preconceived idea that you're always in the condition red or you're nervous all the time. And you just explained through his eyes that would just kill you. And I really like the way that he describes uh, the effect that being in the, the maelstrom of battle and what effect that has on us. Uh, on a person, you know, these fighter pilots and uh, bomber pilots come back and those who survive land, you know, and he talks to them after they get out of their 
planes and trying to get their uh, recollections of what happened. And they're just so amped up. Uh, you know, they're talking a, a mile a minute and uh, they're saying, let's go out and get him again. You know, let's hit him again. And then uh, after a few days, if he goes back to the same pilot and he says uh, he's kind of uh, spent and worn out and run out from that experience and just the the mental strain it took on him he's kind of compared to like suffering from a hangover you're kind of recovering from combat it takes a while to you know come down from that that high of the action that he experienced and uh, Tregasis does a great job of writing about that and letting people know you know uh, the whole gamut of, of emotions that someone has to go through in in combat well, on that note, it's a good lead in. Uh, in chapter 14, you talked about an experience he had on a bombing run where he is sitting in the front of the plane and he's sitting on a yellow cushion to, to kind of witness this, this bombing run on a railroad, having to go through this several times, passing out from the G-force and then literally wetting himself on this yellow cushion because he didn't really have a choice. He had to go to the bathroom. Uh, it's just, it was a great story. After I finished it and laughed, I was thinking, what was the motivation for the soldiers to allow him to join them on raids like that, on those bombing runs, on those, on those different types of things that they were conducting? What popped in their heads? Like, why would they allow him to tag along? I think they allowed him and any other correspondent uh, to tag along with them because they wanted their stories told. Uh, they wanted to uh, have people realize, you know, what they were going through uh, in combat. And uh, Tregasis just had this special ability, I, I think Paul did as well, of ingratiating himself uh, with the soldiers uh, they came across. And uh, yeah, that uh, that mission on that uh, P-38 fighter plane where he's in the droop snoot, you know, kind of an, an observer and really uh, the first correspondent, I think, to be uh, on a fighter mission like that and be under fire for, from a German plane and, uh, you know, experiencing the G-forces and having to relieve himself because there's nowhere else to go. When you got to go, you got to go and right. realize that. But uh, he just has this uh, unique ability, I think, to connect with soldiers with any kind of any kind of service from the Marines uh, to the Navy, to the Army, to the Air Corps. He was able to make those uh, real serious connections and uh, show that because he was famous, that helped him a bit uh, because, oh, I'm Dick Dragascus. Oh, I, I, I read your book or because, you know, his uh, Guadalcanal diary was turned into armed, armed forces editions that uh, soldiers uh, could read uh, to entertain themselves uh, when they were off duty. So his name was well known as, as was Piles because of his fame. And that, I think, helped him uh, as well in, uh, you know, making these kinds of uh, introductions. Uh, when he was back into action and back into combat. There's a part of my book, too, where he, he's in Germany. They break into, uh, you know, break into Germany, and he's, um, you know, breaking through the uh, Siegfried line, and he's in this bunker that they've captured with these soldiers, and they want their story told. You know, we're doing all this uh, work, we're suffering, uh, we're losing buddies, and we want to be sure to get our names out there uh, to the people back home. And he oh. managed to, to do that by writing a story about that. I was struck by a quote in your book from him about when he learned about some friends who passed away or who, who were killed in combat. He's just talked about how after first hearing about it, he was in shock. 
And then he mm-hmm. consoled himself by saying, at least they died like men, like soldiers doing their jobs well and bravely for something larger than they were. It just really struck me. It's, it seemed that he carried the voices of those he spoke with his entire life. Like every every interaction he had, there was a, some semblance of that either in his writing or a part of who he was that, that changed him into the reporter that he constantly became. Would you agree and do you think that translating all of those stories to the American public and the wider world was one of his motivators for doing what he did? And was that his primary one? I think it was was a key motivator that, uh, you know, he was found himself being trusted by these individuals to tell their stories. And he wanted to do that well and make sure that these uh, men uh, were not forgotten in the years to come. And he does that uh, very well, as Pyle did his, you know, death of Captain Waskow. You know, you, if you're someone who's interested in World War II, if you read that column, if you read Patrick uh, Gassis's books about Guadalcanal, there are certain individuals that you'll never forget. And it's because of the power of the written word uh, that they're able to weave their stories into something uh, that uh, people uh, will remember for a, a long, long time. I think that's uh, an aspect of their character and their motivations for doing what they did, uh, because they certainly didn't get uh, a lot of money out of it, and uh, they got a certain amount of fame, uh, but that's always fleeting, and people uh, forget sometimes. Uh, Even Ernie Pyle is not as well-known today as he was for a certain generation, and I think if you say Richard Tregascus to a high school student, they might not necessarily know who that individual is. We need to remember them uh, and and their stories and and their bravery uh, because they did it during a a remarkable time uh, in our history. And uh, we can't forget that. So as I was reading through your book, grit appears to be a key attribute in who Tregascus was from being a diabetic to almost being killed over and over again. Uh, He gained grit through all of his experiences. What can we learn from this? And what are some other extraordinary attributes from his life that are good to pull from? I think one of the key things to remember is uh, being meticulous in his work. He made sure every day to uh, carry along with him, you know, small notebooks that he would record what he observed and um, information about people he talked to. And then at night, you know, while you know, he could have just gone to sleep and, and rested, he would transfer this uh, material from these small notebooks into these larger kind of gilt edge notebooks that he carried with him uh, as well. So then later, he could draw upon the information he had recorded uh, to uh, write his books, to write his articles. And so I think that's why they're so still uh, well regarded today in the fact that he uh, was able to uh, record information. Uh, get his facts straight and uh, make sure that he, he told the truth as best he could. And I think that's why his work has stood the test of time, uh, because he's not trying to inflate anyone's ego. He's not trying to put himself above anyone else. He's trying to give you uh, the facts uh, as best he can as he remembered them and uh, recorded them. And I think that's something that's uh, important to remember for any journalist. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Telling the truth, uh, getting the facts straight is uh, the number one attribute for 
any reporter. And uh, yeah. realize too that uh, there are people who don't necessarily want to get have the truth out. That uh, you know there are, are uh, truth suppressors out there uh, who are going to work against you. Uh, but uh, to uh, keep digging at it and uh, trying to do as best you can uh, to get uh, the word back uh, to the public, so they know what's going on. And also, there's this interesting aspect of both Pyle and Tregascus and uh, the war, another war correspondent uh, I wrote about, Robert Sherrod, who was kind of the Ernie Pyle of the Marine Corps uh, during World War II. And the fact that they weren't what they called communique commandos, those were correspondents who stayed behind the lines, back at headquarters, and just depended upon, you know, handouts from public relations officers about what was going on uh, during battles. All these individuals, the, the best correspondents, the best war reporters, you know, had to see for themselves. They had to be there and experience as best they could, uh, given the difficulties uh, of the time, what was going on in the front lines, get up as close as they could, and uh, sometimes risk their lives in, in doing so. I was actually going to ask you about Robert Shaw, and I, I was curious if uh, he and Tregascus ever interacted at all, or were they in different parts of the Pacific Theater? They were in different parts. All of these people kind of interacted with Pyle. Of mm. course, Tregascus interacted with him because during when he got wounded, Pyle came by to wish him well and wrote a whole column uh, about that experience. And then later on in the Pacific, when uh, Pyle uh, went from there to during the last days of the war and was involved in the invasion of Okinawa, he's there covering the action uh, with Sherrod. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're uh, partying with each other, uh, drinking too much uh, before they go into the actual action of the Battle of Okinawa. Hmm. They're there for the initial landings on April 1st, 1945, uh, where they're very, you know, they don't meet a lot of opposition. Everyone's very uh, relieved about that. Uh, they go back on a transport ship. Uh, after their uh, initial landings, they're both, you know, writing their stories. And uh, Pyle even uh, tells Sherrod, you know, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to go back home. I might, you know, I won't go on, on any more landings, but I might, uh, you know, write a few more stories be before I return. But uh, he's encouraged, you know, to go on that last faithful operation on Ishima, where he's uh, shot and killed by the Japanese soldiers. So uh, they they have these connections to Pyle, but uh, Sherrod and Tregascus, I don't believe, ever uh, encountered uh, one another. Okay. And then building off of kind of Joe's question, looking again, big picture, I'm curious, as, as you did the research for the book and studied not just Tregascus, but the other war correspondents, how did World War II change American media big picture? Or did it? Also, how did Vietnam change American media? I would imagine that Vietnam had a bigger effect on kind of the state of the American media, but I'd love to get your insights on both of those. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, World War II changed American media uh, that much. It's good to remember that that time, of course, if you were on the home front, you were dependent upon uh, newspaper reporters for word about what the progress of the war was. Of course, you had radio, but uh, that wasn't didn't give you the detail that you could get from individual newspaper accounts. Whereas, of course, in the Vietnam War, you see the growth and the rise of television news over and above uh, newspaper reporters. Of course, early on during the American involvement in, in Vietnam, uh, you still had that dependency on P 
print media. You had uh, the resident correspondents like Malcolm Brown of the Associated Press, David Halberstam of the New York Times, Neil Sheehan of United Press International. You know, they were p- the people who were there in Saigon and really digging into the story of our early involvement uh, with the uh, ZM government and how uh, things were going against the, the Viet Cong. And it wasn't until time went on that uh, TV news really um, skyrocketed and became the way that uh, most people back home got their news uh, about the war in uh, Vietnam. But early on, it was, you know, dependent once again on, you know, wire services and uh, newspaper reporters. Hmm. And uh, But the Vietnam is really a key, I think, in a change in media and how consumers get their news. And it's uh, through television and not through print as the war progresses and mm-hmm. our involvement gets uh, more and more complex and we're more drawn into the war. Malcolm Brown, who was the AP bureau chief in Saigon, even he, you know, he's there from 61 to 1966. And at the end of his tenure there, he transitions from you know writing for the AP as a, as a print journalist and uh, tra- goes to ABC News because you can see the movement away mm-hmm. from traditional journalism to broadcast journalism. Do you think that, as in the book you mentioned, Tregasus had kind of an, an interesting take specifically on Korea? Now, he wasn't there, but the text describes how he, he thought it was kind of the way it was portrayed in the press was not from what he understood the way that it actually was going on in the ground, that there was maybe even more censorship and that there was an element of bias in some of the reporters either in Korea or the ones at home who were kind of putting these stories out. Did we see elements of that bias in the Second World War? Again, not not so much in the reporters in the field, but in how they how the stories were organized, how and when they were released, what was censored, what was not. Or was it mostly about in World War Two, we're censoring stuff because we don't want the enemy to get a hold of this information? I think World War II, of course, you have the worry that uh, you don't want to release any information that will give aid and comfort to the enemy. You don't want to have any secrets come out, you know, that could cost uh, American lives. But there's also things that are censored because they think it might be harmful uh, to the home front. Things about, um, you know, Steinbeck talks about how we seem to make this agreement that uh, throughout their service in in the war, uh, GIs gave up sex. Because, you know, that's never talked about uh, in, during uh, the wartime. And it's only later that, that of course, uh, a lot of these stories uh, come out. So you have uh, kind of a, an agreement on, among the correspondents about what they can and, and, and can't write about. And you have uh, censorship, especially early on during the war, that you never see, you know, dead American soldiers. And, in fact, it's not until a couple of years into the war in the Pacific that you first see uh, some dead American bodies lying uh, on a beach, and uh, you never see their faces. They're all turned over, you know, they're face down. And during uh, the Battle of Parawa, that uh, costs uh, the Marines so dearly in just 76 hours, you know, uh, ghastly casualties are, are encountered. And uh, Gerard goes back to the United States and it actually goes to the White House, and they've uh, filmed of the action of uh, the Marine Corps cameramen have filmed the action to put together a documentary about uh, the Battle of Tarawa. It has some ghastly images in it of American dead floating in the water. And uh, FDR even asked uh, Sherrod about this, you know, should we release this? And 
So yeah, the people need to know about what's going on and the grim cost that the combat takes uh, on the men that, that they know and love. And it's released and wins a, uh, an Oscar for Best uh, Documentary. Uh, so um, uh, some grim facts are eventually released. Tregascus had his biggest conflict during his time in Vietnam uh, when he encounters these young correspondents who were writing about our early involvement uh, in the war. David Halberstam tells this famous story about how, you know, he had uh, really respected uh, Tregascus. His father had, had been involved in World War II, and he had kind of put uh, Tregascus as a hero of his and uh, remembered him as he uh, started his own journalism career. And here's Richard uh, Tregascus, this famous name. He comes to Vietnam and Halverson wants to show him around, introduce him to some of his uh, contacts uh, as he's doing his reporting uh, from uh, Saigon and into the countryside. And they spend this day uh, together, and they're going back after their long day. And uh, Gas is, according to Halverson, tells him, you know, if, if I were doing what you're doing, I'd be ashamed of myself. And this really uh, has a hurtful impact. There's this hero of, of journalism telling him what he's doing uh, is wrong. And there's this conflict between uh, these young Turks of journalism, maybe not uh, doing the same kind of reporting that Turkaskis and other correspondents had uh, during the war. They're having more questions about, you know, not should we be involved, but is what we're doing in the war, is it making a positive impact? You know, are we doing the right thing in supporting this government? Uh, and it was just a different kind of war in World War II, Vietnam, you know, in uh, uh, World War II, you were used to these large-scale battles, and the, the, the lines are pretty well drawn between front lines and behind the lines. In Vietnam, you know, the front is everywhere. You could be sitting in a restaurant in Saigon and have a grenade thrown, you know, inside a restaurant and uh, from a VC terrorist. So uh, the war was uh, everywhere, and they didn't necessarily believe the story that was t coming out from embassy officials, from military officials uh, in Vietnam, these journalists were, you know, questioning some of the stories that were being told because it wasn't jiving with what they were seeing in the countryside and hearing from junior officers who were having some conflicts uh, uh, with uh, what was going on uh, in the war. So quite a different kind of reporting than Tregascus was used to. And he's always, you know, sticking up for the for the soldier doing the actual fighting. I think that's why he has some of the conflict uh, between the two. So just as a final question, and it's one that John and I ask all of our guests, we always obviously encourage our audiences to study history. That's why we have this podcast. That's why we created it in short form to really spark the interest uh, of our audience in and the people of history, the events of history, and the places of history. Why should people study history and what benefit is it? The benefit from history is knowing your own story and uh, knowing where you're from and uh, knowing uh, perhaps, you know, where society in, in general uh, is going. I don't, I think if people don't have a sense of their own history, uh, it's going to hurt them down, down the road. Ignorance is never helpful, and I think an ignorance of history is particularly not very helpful. Uh, because, as uh, Harry Truman, you know, once said, uh, the only thing new in the world is a history you don't know. Uh, a lot of the things that have happened in the past can uh, give us uh, insight into what's going on during our present day and what might happen uh, in the future. So having that good grounding uh, in American history just gives you a, a great leg up 
in just dealing with everything going on in, in society. I love that Truman quote. It's fantastic. <clears throat> I share it with my students every year when I'm when I'm teaching American yeah, history. It's a great it's, quote. It's a good, yeah, yeah. yeah, and very wise. This is a great story about uh, an unsung figure in American journalism. Uh, it combines personal stories with larger historical events, especially with the Pacific War. The book is Richard Tregaskis, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam. Thank you, Ray, for joining us. Really appreciate your time. And to our audience, we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you for joining us for this special summer episode of 15 Minute History. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And you can help us make it even better by going to one 5 and clicking the support button. Thanks, and we will see you soon.